Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, this is Andrew Olson here with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Roy Jones. Hey, Roy, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. This is going to be a fun one. I literally, at least every other week, I am part of a Bloomerang podcast of some kind. I think they're doing the amazing work, amazing work in our space in training nonprofit leaders. And I can't wait to spend some time with Steve today. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So we're super excited to have our good friend, Steve Shattuck here. Hey, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. And I, I know you're, uh, you're at home while your wife's out raising money for her organization. And I'm so glad that we locked you down for a little bit of time to talk about what organizations to, can do to manage their data to maximize revenue. So again, thanks for being here. Before we jump in, tell us a little bit about who you are and what Bloomerang does. Yeah, so uh, I'm like over here. the 12 people who don't know who, who Boomer. <laughs> well, it may be slightly more than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Roy said, we, we do a great webinar series. So that was really kind. And, and I would just say that I don't really deserve much credit for it because it's, it's all about the speakers. I mean, you've been on, Andrew, and we've had uh, some really awesome people on every single week. I think now we're over like over 300 presentations that we've, we've done. I do almost every single week we do a webinar. It's, it's interesting. That's one thing that Bloomerang is really known for. And I think sometimes we're known more for that than our actual software, the product that we sell, which is uh, a donor database. Uh, so if you're interested in that, check it out. Uh, we got a lot of happy customers. But yeah, we love educating the sector. We love just spreading knowledge either from us or from really smart people, usually smarter people that are that are not us, and uh, you know we just want to help the sector. So, how many nonprofits in the sector are using are using the database? I think it's over five thousand now. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, we're we're adding a lot every month, and people seem to like it. I mean, we we're getting like daily reviews from people saying that they love it, and yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> and I, I feel like I see you everywhere. So, as the chief <laughs> engagement officer for Bloomerang, you're doing the podcast. You're yep. You're doing or the the webinar series. You're doing the um the organization's blog. And then I just feel like I see you at, you know, industry events, conferences. So you, you oversee all of that work, right? Yeah. They like to kick me out of the office as, as often as possible. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm on the road. I was in Cincinnati for a board retreat a couple of days ago and I was in uh, Chicago the day before that Memphis, South Bend. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I try to get out there and, uh, just share a lot of the, the research and knowledge that we've kind of discovered either through our customers or through some of the partnerships we have. Like we're really closely aligned with uh, the Fundraising Effectiveness Project. We collaborate with Donor Perfect and Neon, even though they're competitors, we still really like them. And, and we, uh, we share a lot of research out there of, of what our customers are doing in terms of retaining donors. And you know we just want to help everybody. So we love spreading the word about a lot of that good stuff. Awesome. Well, uh, let's let's get right into it then. So the idea of how we can better manage our data to maximize revenue brings me to uh, <laughs> the first question. And kind of we were talking about this off the air before we, we jumped in. But so often, I think, you know, guys like Roy and myself, we, we show up at an organization when something's broken, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I'm curious to hear from the, the 
you know, your experience with the 5,000 clients that you guys have and, and probably others that you've had experience with, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see around how organizations are, are managing data right now and, and or, or maybe not managing it? Uh, yeah. I should say it. Well, you know, you asked me about sort of success stories or, or people that are doing it right. And what I see, at least from the, the Bloomerang little cohort of the sector is the people that have really high retention rates, which is a really good indicator that they're doing something right, is they are segmenting their data. And I know it's kind of a buzzword. And I know there's, you know, a gazillion blogs and webinars about it, but it's for good reason that there's a lot of talk about it. It's because when we move away from having just one big bucket of donors that is our database and communicating to them all the same way, we move away from that into let's put people into smaller groupings, people that maybe have um, similar frequencies of donation, maybe similar reasons for giving, maybe similar persona types. And we are communicating to those people differently. That's when we get, you know, higher response rates and higher retention rates from those people. Um, so, you know, the, the number one thing we tell our customers is you've got a database, you know, whether you're using Bloomerang or using donor perfect or whatever you're using razor's edge, we don't, you know, we don't care. We tell them, you should be segmenting these people into audiences and communicating to them differently rather than just taking this, you know, kind of one size all approach to the people in your list or, or in your database. We don't want to just send the same just, list. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple examples of the kind of segmentation you're thinking about. Is, yeah. is it just recency frequency dollar amount or talk to me about that? So one thing I really like is, is reasons for giving. Uh, so we encourage, the people that listen to us to kind of be curious about their donors, especially on the first time donor side, you know, first time donor retention is so low. I think it's around 20% according to the recent data. And I think one of the main reasons is we don't ask people or gather feedback of, of why they gave, what's the connection to the cause? Why are they passionate about what we do? Because you can have two donors in your system who look similar. They both gave $50 they both live in our community. They're both first-time donors. They both gave online. Maybe they even have similar demographic information. But if you go a step deeper and ask them, "Hey, you know, what moved you to donate today? You know, why are you, you know, why are you interested in um, protecting the forests here uh, in Indianapolis?" And you get may get two different reasons that may lead you to communicate to those people much differently than you would have if you had just kind of taken that base information that you got from the transaction. Wow, so you're, so you're taking it not just by source code, but then in the welcome kit process. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> really trying to survey and, get, and hone in on, on the motivation. And you don't have to be super invasive about it. You know, it could be something as simple as after someone donates, you know, the online donation form disappears and they get sent to that thank you page or that confirmation page. Maybe just a quick link on that page or even a, a form that they can fill out right there that says, hey, Stephen, thanks so much for your donation. You know, we can't wait to put it to good use. By the way, we'd love to know more about you. You know, what motivated you to donate today? Because you, you know, let's say you're an Alzheimer's association. You may get one person say, oh, wow, you know, my, my grandmother passed away from Alzheimer's and, you know, I experienced firsthand what that's like and, and I, and I want to help the cause versus someone who maybe saw... Uh, a billboard or an ad or a radio spot and they weren't they don't necessarily have that personal connection 
uh, but they were still motivated to give. You may want to communicate to those people differently than, than that other person, even though they gave the same amount through the same channel. So I think that that sort of motivation information can be really, really useful in our database as a data point that we can sort of base different segmented communications off of. Wow. Interesting. Wow. And we have a customer that is a public school foundation up in the Finger Lakes of New York. And she has this, this segmentation matrix that is so awesome and so detailed, but that makes total sense. And they raise a lot of money. So they're a public school foundation. So they're communicating to students, former students, parents of students, parents of former students, grandparents of students, grandparents of former students, and then slicing all those personas by the things we said before, frequency and recency and gift amount and reasons for giving and those things. So she has a very, it, you know, it kind of looks like a complicated segment, but everything that they send to each of those audiences is very intentional. It's personalized. It's contextualized for the type of person that they are versus just sending that one appeal to the entire list and hoping that it's, it's compelling for, for somebody and it's wow. not going to be compelling. For I mean, I mean I, of course I'm sitting here thinking, man, do I have the manpower to pull that off? <laughs> yeah. But I see it, it's a much more donor centric approach, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and the good thing is, is that I think the technology has really caught up to enabling <laughs> in, in a way that's not overwhelming for the user. You know, if you're using, a database product that's, you know, not Excel and, um, you know, not just a, an email system, you should be able to, to create these segments pretty easily. And then I think the challenge is, you know, customizing that content. And it is a lot of work, but I think it pays dividends more than maybe some of the things that we spend a lot of time on that we don't even think twice about. And, and maybe the ROI isn't there as much as it would be if, if we did take these, you know, very donor centric approaches to what we're doing. So I want to pick at that a little bit. I, I'd be curious because like in the, in the say direct mail world, mm -hmm. there are some tipping points, right? You know, if you've yeah. got a couple of dozen donors that fit a certain criteria, it's probably not worth it to create no. a unique kit that you mail those people because you're never going to get the kind of return that you need. But right. You know, certainly digitally, it's a whole different landscape. I'm curious to know from, from your experience, like, are there typical uh, kind of like uh, tipping points, you know, where you say, okay, don't even spend the time to do this unless you have X number of records on the file. How do you counsel organizations on that? Yeah, I think you said it. I think that it, it's got a scale, right? Um, and and every, everyone's probably different, right? But I think that there is probably an amount of records or maybe even an amount of segments that may not be worth it necessarily. And I think that's something that, that you should test. And we haven't even really talked about testing yet. That can be something that maybe you experiment with so you, you find kind of that sweet spot so that you know, you know, we've got, we've got three segments. Should we add a fourth? Well, why don't we try it and see if it really moved the needle? And if it didn't, well, you know, that's fine. We kind of found that ceiling. But finding that ceiling is, is part of this and something that you should be, you know, experimenting with so that you can, you can make these decisions and not put all that work into it for, for you know, zero dividends or, or a little bit of, of lift from it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to switch this a little bit and... Talk a little bit about the person who sits in the seat at a nonprofit as kind of a database administrator. What I've seen over mm -hmm. time, 
and it, it's changing a little bit, it feels like at least. But for a long time, when I walk into an organization, you know, the, the person who was chief, you know, sort of chiefly in charge of maintaining the integrity of, of a CRM and, and really stewarding the organization's biggest asset, mm-hmm. oftentimes it was like, well, yeah, this is so-and-so's nephew or cousin or, you know, oh, we, yeah. we found this person and, and they'll learn the system. Yeah. Give us it's- the argument for why organizations should professionalize that role and what the value is in having someone who really understands the tools and how data works. It's a killer. I mean, you said it, it is one of the most, if not the most important asset of the organization. And we find that to be this, the same, Andrew, when, when we're talking to people, it's someone that usually it's the person who wants to own the database the least. They sort of get, <laughs> you know, assigned it and they don't want to do it. And when you consider the high turnover rates in our sector, that can be something that is just really, really hard to overcome if that person leads and, and they're not utilizing that asset. Another, another issue that arises is you've got to train a new person, you've got to onboard them into the system. And if there wasn't maybe documentation of how that previous person was using the system, that's even worse. So, I like your idea of professionalizing it, but I, I would also recommend maybe a third approach, which is to open up the system to a lot of people in the organization. And I know that there are a lot of people that may disagree with this or may push back on it, but I'll kind of make the case for it. This is the repository of, of all this information of our supporters. And if you have multiple people maybe out in the field, maybe they're putting on events, maybe they're simply communicating to donors one-on-one. I think you want all those people to be able to go into the database, you know, immediately or very soon after that interaction and record all those notes so that you have the most updated information rather than you have a donor meeting or you have a donor interaction, you go back to the office, you maybe write it down or scribble it down or email it to that database person and they put it into the system. And if something is maybe lost in translation, or if it doesn't get put in, you know, that could be potentially embarrassing, you know, down the road when you have a second interaction with that donor, you don't want to ask that person the same questions that they got asked before, or maybe say something embarrassing. So what we recommend is have a very rigorous and documented sort of standard operating procedure for the database that everyone on the organization is trained on. And then open it up, you know, protect yourself from that turnover so that, you know, multiple people are familiar with the software. And if you lose someone, there's redundancies and you don't lose that, that one single person that is in charge of the database. And then you are also able to collect information, pull it up on your iPhone, you know, log into the database, you know, put in those notes and, and not have anything missed, not miss any of that crucial information that you may have collected that other people in the organization didn't see. You know, it's so interesting you say that. So do you know uh, Jason Lewis? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's, he's really fond of, of saying, you know, you can either scale your fundraising or you can maintain control, right? Right. That, that in order to scale, you, you have to be willing to give up some control. And, and I think this is a perfect example of it because so many organizations say, nope, we're going to have one person that inputs data, right? Right. Everyone, maybe you can view a record, but sure. you know, you have to go through 19 steps and you know three reams of business rules to get something input 
to the database. And, and that kind of command and control structure just really makes it tough, you know, to improve on the fly. And like you said, to make sure that you don't have a single point of failure who when right. they leave, you're crippled for the next, you know, 60 days until you hire and train somebody. It may be longer. I mean, we've, we've had people that, you know, want to buy a Bloomerang who their current database, it's gone underutilized for years, not just days or months, and they're paying for it. And they're also not utilizing those data insights. So I, I totally agree with Jason. And, you know, he said it in 10 words where I said it in 500. So I, I love the way you, <laughs> that you put it through him. But I, I, I think so. And I think that, you know, levels of user permissions so that you maybe don't get yourself into trouble. But there's, there's also some mistrust. You know, it, it seems weird to me that we would not trust our employees to, to use this system and, and only place that trust into that one person. Sometimes it's not just about the training and the expertise. A lot of times it's trust like, oh, I don't want that person to be able to see, you know, what that mm. person gave, or I don't want them to be able to mess anything up. And, and my thing is, well, you should trust your employees, but you should also create those parameters and that standard documentation so that everyone is putting data into the system the same way? Like, are we going to spell out street or are we going to say ST period? Like those kinds of things. I know it's mundane. I know it seems really boring, but I think the alternative, like you said, is to, to lose a lot of time and, and lose a lot of money in the process. Yeah. So something else that you sort of touched on when you were answering earlier that, you know, organizations might be looking to Bloomerang and that their, you know, their current CRM is underutilized. Mm -hmm. I find that in so many conversations I have, you know, an organization will come and say, we're going to do a database conversion because this system doesn't work for us. Right. <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, it, it's hard for me to conceive a, a situation with, with the tools that are on the market these days where a CRM platform, whether it's, you know, a Bloomerang or a Razor's Edge or a Donor mm -hmm. Perfect, whatever, quote unquote, won't work for them. It, you know, it's, it's right. almost always, at least in my opinion, a lack of training and a lack yep. of, of application. But talk to us. I mean, I feel like that's a prevalent thing. Am I crazy? No, I agree. I mean, we hear that a lot. And, and, and oftentimes, I think, I think one of the reasons people like Bloomerang, and, and you may see this in some of the online reviews, is we've talked people out of buying Bloomerang. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll sit down with a person, we'll hear what you just said, Andrew, and we will kind of pull on that thread because we don't want someone to, to switch if they have a system that is usable for them and can work for them. You know, if it truly can't, if there's something that they, that they need, or if maybe there's other aspects of the company that are, that are not providing them good service, you know, those are good reasons to switch. But, you know, I've talked to people at events who say, you know, we're using Razor's Edge and it's working great. Or we're using Donor Perfect and it's working great. And I say, that's great. You know, we're not going to bug you. Um, but if, if you've got something, you look at it uh, for a, a few minutes and, and see if you can maybe salvage that, that sort of investment. I think the, one of the reasons you hear that, Andrew, is maybe the person who bought that software is no longer at the company and mm. that uh, sort of next person up inherited it. And they simply don't understand. Like you said, they didn't go through the training. They didn't vet all the systems and they've just got this thing sitting there that they don't really know how to use, you know, not to talk ourselves out of business, but I, I would make sure you, you at least look at that and see if it'll work for you. Cause there's a lot of really good systems out there that uh, all do really interesting things that I can think be helpful. Um, but I, it, it goes back to turnover. Like I think so many of these issues stem from that high turnover rate 
and it, it kind of leads us to to make bad decisions that uh, that cost our, our organizations, you know, a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of time. Steve, and you know that that brings to mind. I mean, so often, and, and turnover certainly impacts this, but I have found over the last, believe it or not, almost forty years. <laughs> Uh, working with nonprofits, and I've gone through database conversions five or six times, painful times that I can remember in that period. But so often, the pain is a result of not beginning with the end in mind. Yeah. Not not doing the right vision casting on the front end about how the organization intends to grow. Yeah. And, and, And making room and capacity for that. Talk about that in your process when you onboard a, a, a new client? Yeah, we, we, we really try to do more than just a, a data conversion. We try to do a full implementation. You know, the, the data conversion is, I think, just table stakes, right? It's, it's how you set up the database uh, for the future that's really going to make people successful. I mean, you said it. I mean, garbage data in is garbage data out. And it just sort of snowballs and compounds and, and can put you in a really bad space. So, you know, what is it that we are going to track on the constituents profile? What information is, is meaningful to us? Are we creating those, those fields or capturing that data? Um, and are we being consistent with it? And then, you know, what are we looking at? I think the reporting piece, I think, is really important. You know, we spend a lot of time with, with new customers helping them set up those reports that are, that are meaningful to them, you know, who are our people that uh, are alumni, who are people that are maybe in danger of lapsing, who are the new donors that we want to make sure we steward and we give a really good introduction to the organization through. So I think that that piece is, is really critical, not just moving the data from the one system to the other and then just kind of maintaining the status quo, but what are we really going to be looking at in this database that that'll make someone successful. I, I mean, I totally agree with with your assessment there. Talk to me. You touched on it. The kinds of reports that your five thousand plus customers are asking for. What metrics yeah. matter today? So I I like really weird reports. Actually, I, I gave a presentation on Tuesday on really sort of bonkers off the wall reports that you should be looking at. Um, and, and there are the standards, you know, there's your Libunt and your Cybunt report and your, you know, overdue pledges, I think is a good report to be looking at if you have those, cause that's just kind of free money sitting out there, you know, new donors, you know, I think that, you know, maybe every week or maybe even every day, if you don't have too high of a gift volume, just looking at who are the, the donors that gave to us for the first time. Um, and maybe giving them some special attention if you have the bandwidth for that. And, and I, I would recommend that you make bandwidth for that because the retention rates there are really low and you may have actually spent more to acquire that donor than they actually gave to you. But beyond that, I, uh, one of my favorites is, is out-of-town donors. If you are uh, a hyper-local organization, if, you have an, if you're an organization... As are most nonprofits in the U.S., right? Yeah, absolutely. You out of probably, 2 million nonprofits, I've... I would, That's a I lot. would say usually a million and a half of them are, are regional charities. Yeah, absolutely. You're serving maybe a city or a county or a county area. And if you have donors who don't live in that service offering area, that's sort of weird. They're not necessarily benefiting from the services you provide. 
And so I encourage that to everyone who will listen to me. I just actually shout that to people on the street who, who I walk by, <laughs> who may or may not be fundraisers. But um, <laughs> I give to an organization that is located in the town I grew up. And they did a really good job stewarding me and getting to know me, asking those questions like I mentioned in the beginning, like, hey, Stephen, you know, you don't live here. Why are you donating to us? You know, you live in Indiana and we're in Massachusetts. Why are you donating to us? That's kind of weird. And I'm able to tell my story. Well, you know, I, I grew up here and I wanted to give back to you guys. And that's a really strong signal if you have a donor that is just giving back because they maybe used to receive services from you or maybe they want to make sure that that community they grew up in still is, is a viable place or a beautiful place or whatever it is that you do. So I think that's an easy report that you could run uh, maybe every once in a while. And it's not going to be a ton of people. It's probably going to be a couple people a year. But those people, I think, are awesome prospects for maybe things like plan giving or bequest marketing, mm-hmm. especially if they don't have all those other, if they have all those other signals that, that kind of denote a good bequest prospect, they might want to leave you something to continue that legacy. So out of town donors, I really like, and, and I think that'll help you maybe uncover some of those former service recipients. Uh, you know, volunteers, of course, are great. But one thing that, that we've seen from customers is if you're an organization that relies on frequent corporate volunteer visits, of course, thank the volunteers, but also zero in on that person that maybe organizes that trip the person that maybe goes to their HR department and asks permission to ask employees, their coworkers to send a big group to, to that nonprofit to go and volunteer for the day. That person really likes you. They may not necessarily have the capacity to give a lot of money, but they want a lot of people to help the organization. That peer to peer fundraiser is another example. I think sometimes we get really caught up with, oh, you know, this peer-to-peer program or Facebook or whatever, they're not giving us the, the, the contact information of the donors. Well, let's, let's put a spotlight on that fundraiser, that person who creates the fundraiser and is, and is getting those people to donate. That person should really get a majority of the, the attention um, if you can't reach out to all those other people. So, you know, other things like looking for upgrades, you know, are we reporting on donors who are increasing their, their gifts year over year, or maybe month by month, if they're a monthly donor, you know, you might want to give those people some extra attention, but it just goes back to the segmentation, you know, not making sure that you're not treating everyone uh, the same because there are so many different types of donors in your system, but you just kind of, kind of look for them and, and look for those weird signals that, that may show a, a high level of affinity and love for you that maybe the dollar amount doesn't necessarily uh, broadcast as much. So to stay with this, broadly speaking for a minute, I'm sort of in the area of reporting and analytics and, and how organizations use that information. Have you seen anything change in the last three to five years with respect to how C-suite executives interact with reporting and, and has demand increased? What's changed in that area? Yeah, I think demand has increased. One thing we're seeing is that more and more people are talking about trends in giving, you know, falling donor retention rates or stag, you know, stagnant donor retention rates is probably a better way to put it. I think more people are getting hands-on. And I also think that the accessibility of the technology is helping, hmm. right? There are a lot of really good systems that anyone can log into at any given time. And I'm not just talking about Bloomerang, but there are a lot of other ones where... Even an ED with, you know, 
minimal technical expertise or a board member can go in and look at those reports versus having to run you know, complicated queries and, 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 and the things that maybe those systems before the turn of the century required you know, <laughs> cloud-based application. I know it's almost 2020 and it seems like that's sort of a given, but there are still some systems that aren't on the cloud and, and the people that are able to log in from any computer, any mobile device, rather than having it be on one data dedicated machine in the office. I think is really good for the sector and, and mobile. I mean, the, the fact that you can pull up these things on your phone you know, right after having a donor visit, you know, being able to put in all your notes from that visit right on your phone. And again, it constitute or it populates the profile. That's great. I mean, in a lot of ways, yeah. I think it's kind of a golden age for fundraising in terms of the technology that's available to us, which is great. Yeah, I'm not going to name names of the organization or their database provider, but uh, <laughs> when I was on the client side, I worked in an organization that literally the system was on one machine in the office. Yep. And, and in order to make it work to, to get any reporting out of it, we actually had to full-time SQL programmer on oh, the payroll. No. Um, yeah, and, and so to see what the options are today and how democratized the access is, is really exciting to me. And I, I, yeah. I hope that fundraisers are using it more, uh, more frequently and more effectively because of those reasons. But that, that brings with it a lot of challenges, you know, making sure that we're all using the system in the same way. And I can't stress enough, I know I've already said it a couple of times, but <laughs> having that documented sort of plan or, or roadmap for how we're going to use it will really keep you out of trouble. And we have some people that not, not very often, but every once in a while, some will say, well, we don't want a cloud-based system that, that doesn't seem secure. And so there's still a little bit of that out there. And, and we say, well, <laughs> if the tornado hits your building and hits that one computer, if you have a power outage or a flood or a theft, like that's all your, that's all your data. So, you know, you said it, democratization. Or if somebody walks away with your shoebox full of data. You know? Yeah, your index cards. <laughs> we occasionally will get paper records that we have to convert, which is always kind of fun. And, and we're, we're happy to help those people. <laughs> it's a little scary. So one of the things that I think is exciting about how you guys at Bloomerang approach the database and what sort of integrations you have. You know, a lot of people talk about integrating wealth data. I love that you guys have integrated with donor search yeah. and their data. So talk to us a little bit about why you guys chose to partner with them and what the value is to organizations of looking at that level of data. Yeah. I love donor <laughs> search. They're awesome. Um, they're kind of like us, you know, they're kind of philosophically aligned, kind of a similar size. Uh, and we just really hit it off with them. And, and they're awesome. They put out a lot of really great research of, you know, what kind of capacity signals you should be looking for and, and, and what really denotes someone that, that has a likelihood to give to you. But I think it goes back to the segmentation. We want to give people as much information uh, about their donors as possible so that they can make really good decisions uh, about how they communicate or maybe how they approach those people. So, so one thing we do is, you know, you can run a wealth screening on any donor right from Bloomerang. Um, but if you don't have a donor search subscription, which you should all get because it's, it's, so, it's so worth the money and it's not really that much money per year, is we will pull that information onto the constituent's profile and show you a score, which is basically like a thermometer score from cold to, to on fire, really warm, of how much capacity that person has. And, and we sort of look at, the likelihood that they will donate to organizations like yours 
based on previous giving to or other organizations that are maybe similar to yours or operate within the same cause type. And then other things like, do they own, do they own a lot of real estate? Do they give, you know, to political uh, campaigns? Do they serve as a foundation trustee? Like we'll pull all that information and kind of wrangle all that data and make a suggestion to you. And just wealth is not enough to, to say this person is, is a good prospect for us. We need to layer on all those other things, you know, previous engagement with your organization, maybe giving to other organizations like yours, but just knowing that information will just guide your efforts. I think that's probably the best way to answer your question, Andrew. If, if you've got a donor that has high capacity and they've only been giving, you know, maybe a hundred dollars a year to you, maybe we should add, you know, up that amount that we're asking that person. Maybe we should consider them as a, a multi-year pledge to a capital campaign versus someone that we should conversely maybe segment out of those larger asks or those larger campaigns and maybe move them into maybe more modest monthly giving or see if we can get them to become a volunteer or maybe a peer to peer fundraiser. So it, it all comes down to just giving the user, the fundraiser, just some insights so they can make better decisions on, on the approach they take with, with individual donors. Yeah, that's interesting. It really is. That, that really is the art form of what we do. I yeah. think philanthropic intent, not just wealth. Yeah, absolutely. The wealth is only, only a, a piece of that pie. You know, we'll, we would have people ask us and I've been at events asking us, you know, we, we want to find the rich people in our, <laughs> in our city. I'm like, well, okay, you know, why do you want to do that? Let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, it's, it's good to know that information, but a rich stranger, <laughs> not necessarily going to be a really good prospect for you, but if you find a current donor or a current supporter that has high capacity that maybe you didn't know about, that's useful, right? Because you might want to upgrade their gift or, you know, ask for a higher dollar amount or, or some other, you know, other mode of giving that, that you weren't asking for before. So it's, it's all really useful. And the, the more information you have, just the, the more guided your efforts are going to be. Yeah. And it's like that, the old, you know, joke that, you're sitting around a boardroom and somebody says, well, all we have to do is write a letter to Oprah, right? Right. Or Bill Gates. Or, or can we call Bill Gates? Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, right. and unfortunately it actually happens. It uh, does. When, when there are people sitting there on the file who have given a dozen gifts, who probably have the capacity to give, you know, a, a six figure gift or even maybe a seven yeah. figure gift that, you know, we're, we're asking for $20 because that's what right. we've always asked for. And that's what they've always given. You know? It gets it gets the attention when those things happen. It hits the news, like you know that that librarian who was a, a modest middle class earner, you know, passed away and left five million dollars to this this local animal shelter, and and I think that kind of warms its way into our brains, like well, okay, well, we just got to find the rich people because maybe they'll leave us money. But it's it, what doesn't get the attention is someone building a robust profile of a donor, seeing that they could give more, you know, reaching out to them, getting that upgrade, even if it's a small amount, but over the lifetime of that giving, that can mean, you know, thousands of dollars for that, yeah. for that organization. That doesn't get the attention, but that can be, that can be very powerful for the organization that pulls those things off. Yeah. So um, we have just a few minutes left. I, I want to take us to a question that's um, not at all, what I would consider like, you know, a, a hot topic or, or a okay. sexy topic to talk about. <laughs> but 
I think it costs organizations millions of dollars a year across the country. Talk to us about the importance of data hygiene yes. and how organizations should think about that. So I'll tell a story that I, that I think will be useful. So we had uh, a customer who invested in some data hygiene and what they invested in was a couple of data services that you can buy separately. And I think you should all buy these things if you're listening, but if you use Bloomerang, we actually will do this for you for free. But they bought uh, an NCOA, which is probably gonna be familiar to most of the listeners. So that's, that's updating the addresses in your file. So making sure that the, the mail you're sending out you know, gets delivered, it doesn't get to someone who has moved. And then the other one, which I'm really passionate about, is, is not the, the curious subject, but it's a, a deceased suppression processing. Mm-hmm. So this will tell you if any of the people in your database have passed away. And you can do a lot of things with that information. You can stop mailing those people if they were a single member of a household. But if they had members of the household, you can do some very interesting stewardship with those people. So what this customer did is they ran the deceased suppression, then they updated all their data with uh, people that had passed away. And um, anyone that had a surviving household member that they had uh, information on, they sent a condolence note to that person. So they sent just a simple card, you know, handwritten inside, hey, you know, hey, Stephen, we are so sorry to hear that, that your wife passed away, your partner, your spouse, whatever the case was. And one person wrote back, I believe it was the, the husband of the donor that had passed away, the wife, and which is typical, it's usually the, the female, the family, uh, in, in that opposite sex relationship who handles that, the donation side of the finances. And the husband wrote back and said, wow, I had no idea that we were even giving to you. And they included a big check, <laughs> one-time check in the response to the condolence note. And then they also kept that regular gift going. And now I'm not saying that you're hitting these people up for money, <laughs> but it is a really nice stewardship piece. And if you do any, if you do nothing else but stop mailing those people because those surviving household members, they don't want to get mail that is delivered to their, their loved one that has passed away. So that is a, a really tangible, super high ROI. I mean, the, the, the savings alone on the postage will probably pay for the service itself. But taking care of those things, making sure that your addresses are getting updated, that you're running, you know, you're, you're comparing it to death records. That's what that deceased suppression will do. But then also making sure that you're following those guidelines of entering data and that you're avoiding duplicates and that you have addresses that are sort of standardized so that the mail will get to them. That It's so critical. I mean, if you, know, you can have all the great things that we've been talking about throughout the hour or so, but without the data hygiene, no one's going to get your stuff, right? You're going to be sending to people that have moved, that have passed away, that their email addresses change. And you can do these things for email addresses. You can do them for phone numbers. And I think it's really worth the investment on at least an annual basis to do these things. I mean, we, we will do an NCOA and a deceased suppression daily for you if you're a Boomerang customer and it's totally included in, in the service and the pricing. Um, so you always have the most up-to-date information. But if you're not a Boomerang user, please invest in those things. There are tons of providers across the and- North America we're yeah. talking like pennies a record for each of these things, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And if you want the bulk mailing rate through the postal service, the U.S. Postal Service, I think that they require 
an annual NCOA. Don't quote me on that. I think they require it every, yeah. I believe it's every 90 days now. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's, we'll do it that probably breaks time. even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You guys do it more often where you said? Yeah. Yeah. People are often surprised, you know, you ask the post office and, and other folks, I mean, the population in the U S I mean, literally 20% of our database, they move, uh, moves every year. Yeah. So if you're not staying on top of that in five years, you don't have a database. No, absolutely. They're all churning out and, and your, your mail is, is undeliverable to them. So it's so, so critical. And I know that the database itself is a big investment and it just seems like another thing to spend money on and another thing to put in the budget, but really important because you can be collecting all this information, but it becomes out of date literally the next day in, in some cases. So I'm glad you brought it up, Andrew, because I think it's a really important thing to to invest in for sure. Yeah. No, again, I think it's, you know, it, it's not the new shiny object, but for nope. most organizations, that may be the thing that drives the, the greatest amount of revenue for them in the short term. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I, I really appreciate you being here. I, I think we covered some great ground and got some great insights. Uh, folks want to reach out to you, get in touch with you to learn more, to talk about how they can become a Bloomerang customer or a- any other, you know, maybe to talk about what, what your favorite beverage is during a podcast. Uh, I'll, yeah. I'll let them figure that out. Uh, how do they get in touch with you? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. Uh, you probably won't surprise me to hear that, but I'm on Twitter <laughs> just just at Steven Shattuck. I'm, I'm usually posting a lot of silliness and, and weird gifts and stuff, but I'll, I'll also talk to you about fundraising. Uh, I would check out the, the Bloomerang webinar series. You know, just go to bloomerang.co and click on freebies. You'll find our webinar series. It's, it's almost every single week. I think we do like 48 or 49 sessions a year. And we bring on awesome guests. You don't have to listen to me anymore. You'll, you'll hear me for about three minutes when I introduce someone way smarter than me, like Andrew. He's been on, this, on the series. We cover really cool topics. It's totally free. You know, it's not some weird trick to get you to buy a Bloomerang. We just really like to do it. But if you do want to buy a Bloomerang or at least see what we have to offer, you know, just hit our website. There's a, a video demo of the software so you can see and that is my voice again, so you have to hear me for another half hour, but uh, I'll, I'll give you a tour of the system, and uh, you can look at that. You don't have to get hounded by a salesperson uh, to get a look at the system, so I would check that out if you're, if you're curious about us. And I am actually a, a, a Bloomerang referral partner, so I'll, yeah. put in, I'll put in the show notes. If anybody is interested in looking at Bloomerang, if you want to go through uh, that link, it'll get you a nice little discount. Uh, yeah. Move forward with Steven and the Bloomerang team. We love the discounts. (laughs) I I think most everybody does. Hey, man, I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, It will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.